Hello, and welcome to BioCentury This Week. It was another week last week that seemed like it lasted about a year. COVID-19 vaccines are in the clinic and companies are lining up manufacturing capacity. There's talk about large-scale phase three trials and even emergency access in the fall or winter. Everybody wants antibody tests and they want lots of them and they want them right away. But they also want tests that provide meaningful, reliable information. Stung by criticism of barriers have put in place for COVID-19 diagnostics, FDA took a hands-off approach to antibody tests. Now it's putting more regulation in place, trying to find the Goldilocks spot. Not too much and not too little. And forward-looking CEOs and investors are already thinking about what the post-COVID-19 landscape might look like and how to prepare for it. To discuss all of this and more, I'm joined by three BioCentury editors. Since you can't see us, I'll ask them to introduce themselves and then we can jump into it. Karen? I'm Karen Tkach-Tesman, Head of Preclinical Coverage. Selena? I'm Selena Koch, Executive Editor. And Simone? I'm Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. So let, let's start with vaccines. Selena, you created a, a fantastic graphic last week. Um, this is a podcast, so people can't see it, but they can look at it at um, biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. The graphic showed which vaccines are already being tested in human volunteers and some of the timelines. Uh, can you talk us through it? Yeah, sure. So we've been tracking, you know, all of the vaccines and, and therapies and development in our, in our portal. Um, but as the vaccine news has come out with new ones entering the clinic and you know, updates on manufacturing, we just wanted to put it all in one place so people could quickly just look through and see who are the leaders and what are their timelines. So there are a couple of, there at least six are in the clinic, three of which are projecting that they could get EUA this fall including the University of Oxford vaccine and Moderna's and the BioNTech Pfizer. Yeah, and the EUA's emergency use authorization. And we, we don't really have that much visibility about what the regulatory strategy for the Chinese vaccines might be. We don't. We have less information about their timelines. But we were able to kind of put together manufacturing capacity projections for five or six of the vaccines. And what we've been seeing is, you know, companies partnering up with either larger pharmas or with contract manufacturers and trying to get their scale up going on early at risk before they even know if their therapies work. And so their various vaccines are projecting, you know, low millions to hundreds of million doses annually with, you know, the Oxford vaccine projecting up to 60 million doses by year end. So you can find the, the details about which ones are projecting how many doses will be available in the graphic. Yeah, so I actually, I talked to the CEO of Moderna last week. It, they've done a deal with Lonza for manufacturing. And they're saying that within a year, they could make as, they could have capacity up to a billion doses per year. And I also talked to the Serum Institute of India, which is the largest man maker of vaccines by volume in the world. And they're one of the ones that are going to be making that uh, Oxford vaccine at risk. I wanted to talk a little bit about the technologies that are being used. There's a whole variety. Some of the technologies are tried and tested technologies that have been used in vaccines in the past, but a lot of them are technologies that have never actually been used in a, an approved vaccine. Any thoughts about that from any of your, Simone, Karen, Selena? I think it's really interesting, actually, that we have these new technologies coming to bear. One question that has to be raised, we've got these mRNA or nucleic acid-based vaccines that 
Karen, Selena, Kirk, if I'm wrong, but these are really much faster to get in and manufacture. And the question is that we don't know if they're going to work because they haven't been done before. But if they do work, they could just revolutionize going forward how vaccines are made, especially on a short turnaround for a pandemic. Why, why would you go to the older technologies if this one actually works? Is there hope that they could be kind of platforms where you might be able to, once you've got one of them approved, then in the future, you can just switch out the, the, the coding in it, the sequence in it, and very quickly develop new vaccines in, in response to different pandemic threats? Yeah, that's the premise is that for RNA and DNA vaccines in particular, once you know the sequence, you could plop that in. Of course, you'd have to spend some time figuring out what are the most relevant antigens. But the idea is that you don't have to spend time manufacturing recombinant proteins. You can really go based off the sequence information to generate your vaccines. The question of from a regulatory perspective is, you could, um, you know, how much the platform would enable acceleration for new updates of sequences that remains to be seen. But I think it's something that we, back in 2016, uh, during the Zika epidemic, we were seeing and we wrote about how perhaps this is the moment that RNA and DNA vaccines finally get to demonstrate their value for a rapid pandemic or epidemic response. And because that epidemic was more localized and did sort of fizzle out, that didn't exactly come to be. Uh, but this is a now very different situation. And now we're saying the same thing all over again, actually. But I think there's another thing that is a little controversial, maybe, that I am hearing from some people. They actually feel that some of these technologies like mRNA, this actually might be their biggest value, way more than for therapeutics. And so, so there is that idea that these companies that create these vaccines, this might be what is their, their real sort of, uh, I guess, catalyst for them making it. I, and I don't think that any of them were created for vaccines. I think they were mostly created for therapeutics. So that's going to be a really interesting space to watch. Well, it's interesting because even before the COVID crisis took hold, we saw Moderna pivot in a way coming out with viral vaccines as being really a, a key center of gravity for their pipeline. Some of the statements they put out at the beginning of the year, and, and now that's really coming into fruition. So there's a lot of hope riding on these vaccines, and I think everybody who's involved in the vaccine development believes that they're, they're going to work, at least some of them are going to work. On the, on the other hand, uh, Boris Johnson came out today and he said that the world's only hope is a vaccine. Certainly everybody wants a vaccine to work, but is that really true? I mean, that, that's what people said in the early days of AIDS also, and it turns out that we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS, but uh, AIDS was pretty effectively tamed without a vaccine. Well, I think that's a really important point. And let's go even closer to home for another coronavirus. We don't have a vaccine for the common cold. I think to say it's the only hope is probably dangerous, actually. I think that there has to be parallel efforts going into therapeutics, not just repurposed therapeutics. If you look at BioCentury's tracker, we've got more than 350 compounds that are in either preclinical or clinical development. Some of them are vaccines, some of them are therapeutics, but a huge number of therapeutics in development. And some of these are at the very early stages because they are new and developed for COVID-19, tailored for that. There's a sort of sense that repurposed therapies might be good. And we do know from, Selena can talk more about this, from an earlier timeline that she did that you need different ones at different stages. But I think the point is 
that those activities are probably going to come center stage later in the year, especially if the vaccines do run into trouble. If the vaccines work, then many of those probably will fall to the wayside a little bit as attention does wonder. We've seen that before. But if the vaccines are problematic, I think you should expect to see cocktails of drugs and especially innovative drugs. I guess another question I have is the, the effect, we haven't talked about it, remdesivir's gotten emergency use approval in the United States. It's going to get similar approvals in Europe and in Japan, presumably. How does that affect the, the search for, for therapies? Well, we now have a standard of care that would serve as a control. Um, so it's sort of the one to beat. And I agree with Karen. It's effectively now the standard of care. But I think that most people feel it's not going to be a comprehensive solution. And there probably isn't going to be a comprehensive solution. Um, Selena, maybe you can talk more about the time during infection or during the course of the disease when remdesivir would be relevant. We've also got IL-6 data, of course. Yeah, well, I don't think we know that for certain. So we've got emergency use authorization based on data in severe patients. But if you look at the sort of subgroup analyses in, in two of the trials, they hint that, and they hint that it's most effective if given quite early, and that jives with the animal data from remdesivir and primates and other animal models, and data from earlier trials in different different diseases. So I think with a lot of these antivirals, it, you know, it may turn out that you you want to give them early during that phase when the virus is replicating very quickly. So, Selena, I want, I want to ask you about something else. Early on in the crisis, BioCentury surveyed biotechs, and there was a lot of brave talk about working through the pandemic and thoughts that things were going to continue more or less as they would have in, in any case. Last week, we published data about clinical trial delays, and that wasn't a picture at all. It really isn't a picture of just powering through this, is it? Well, that, that's right. When we did a, kind of our first survey on clinical delays in early March, there was still a lot of optimism that um, many companies and many programs wouldn't experience any clinical delays, although there was worry. So this week, we did just a survey of the public disclosures of clinical delays, and we're finding that they're widespread. And even though early on people said, well, for life-threatening conditions like cancer, sepsis, other things, hospitals are just going to have to keep prioritizing those and find a way to treat patients. E even those have gone by the wayside in some, t in some cases. We so, had, cancer was the, like the, had the largest number of disclosed clinical delays. And I think one of the really interesting things that we heard last week was from an investor, Francesco De Robertis of Medici, where not all clinical delays are equal. So in, from a company's point of view, and actually also from a patient's point of view. So if you have a six-month delay in a program, even a preclinical or an early phase program, that just causes a six-month delay in doing it, that, that's what he calls a linear risk. That's just a six-month delay. But in some cases, you might have a delay that causes a regulatory impairment, and that now might mean you actually have to go back to square one. So if your trial might be delayed, if it's a later phase or something like that, and it's delayed six months, you might end up having to push the whole thing back two or three years. That's a completely different risk. And we'll, we'll be digging into that more by a century. But I think, Selena, if I remember right, it was more than 100 companies or trials are delayed. And those are just the publicly disclosed ones that we know about. 
Yeah, it was more that, than 100 companies. More than 100 companies. So that's a lot of trials and a lot of patience. And even though I think that many of them were not more than, what was the average time of that delay? I think it was, two, it was one to two quarters. Right. So we haven't yet seen them postpone more than a year, but that's absolutely something we're going to continue to watch. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of those disclosures were, were made in early March, and the companies haven't updated them. So if they updated them now, we might see some of those delays getting a little longer. So are we going to see a kind of, you know, if we look at in the future when this is all over and we're looking backwards, is there going to be a kind of a, a gap or, a, you know, a, a black spot where there's going to, where there ordinarily would have been biomedical progress and it just stopped and we're going to have to wait for things to, to catch up afterwards? think it's going to appear like a whole in, in that way. I've, I'm hearing sort of from the entertainment world that things are getting written, but they're not getting produced. So around the fall, we're not going to have anything to watch. But I, I think that in, in biopharma, it won't be quite so stark. I think there's a lot of innovation still happening in academic labs and people still writing papers. And I, I think that the time course is generally longer. But there is no question that Things are getting slowed down and um, research is getting slowed down and things will, you know, what, what we're hearing is funding is going ahead. We're hearing deals are still being made and funding still going ahead. So I don't know that we'll actually look back on a black hole. So uh, this is just one final topic for today. Simone, you, you wrote a story last week about kind of what the post-COVID world might look like, that it's not too early to start thinking about that and it's certainly not too early to start planning it, what did you hear and what are you thinking about? What investors and, you know, pharma BD folk are saying is that it's actually going to be quite painful and there will be for sure companies that suffer from this. But the whole landscape, they think actually might emerge healthier. And they, they think that because there is a lot of money, farmers actually have a lot of money on their balance sheets. I mean, the world is bigger, the biotech world is bigger, so there's more ideas and things to balance. But there's a lot of money there. We've seen a lot of um, VCs close really large funds. I think sort of since the beginning of the year, there's like $11 billion that we counted in new funds. And the earlier you are in a fund cycle, the, fine, you know, the more you actually free to and incentivize to go and invest. So those activities will still go on. And what they think, though, is that it will be less than all comers. Um, we had a very frothy market for quite a while now. We saw huge Series A's, very, very high IPO valuations, even for preclinical companies. And so there is a sense that, that that might calm down, but that the really good science will still get funded and the really good companies will still make deals. And that actually there'll be a fairly healthy landscape with sort of what they call a bigger signal-to-noise ratio. But thanks for listening. Thanks for me, Steve Austin, from Karen, from Selena and Simone. To keep up with BioCentury's coverage of science and public policy issues about the coronavirus pandemic, and for access to curated pipeline databases, all in front of the paywall, please visit www.biocentury.com coronavirus.